0: So a few months ago, I reached out to our guest for the episode, one that I've been really excited to put out because, well, there's a certain creature in our oceans and seas.
1: Even freshwater lakes.
0: Yes. Anyway, it's it's a creature that, for all intents and purposes, rules the sea. They are beautiful.
1: Sometimes deadly.
0: Fragile and dominating all at once, and they do it all without a brain. Meet. Lucas Bratz, he's a research associate
2: at the Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries at the University of British Columbia.
0: He's also the Nidaria scientist with Quantitative Aquatics.
2: Um, they're quite simple organisms in in terms of they really just have sort of most of them sort of have two major layers of cells um, in their body. Two separate layers,
0: each made up of just one flat layer of cells.
2: Um, in between those layers of cells, it's filled with sort of this, this matrix of, of water um, that we call the mesoglia.
1: Mesoglia?
2: They don't really have a centralized nervous system like we're familiar with, um, but they sort of have this distributed nerve network. So um, I, it's definitely you know, shocking to people that they can have sort of complex behaviors um, without a brain.
1: <laughs> shocking.
2: But I think that's just sort of uh, us thinking that, you know, something needs a brain to have complex behaviors. All, all a brain is a concentration of, of neurons. And if you just distribute those um, more broadly, then, then you could still have complex behaviors and stuff.
0: You can sort of think of them as still having a brain just, you know, spread out everywhere around the whole body, just much more thinly, like spreading a chunky glob of jelly into a thin layer over a piece of toast.
2: And of course, you know, we're, we're learning that things like plants and trees have really complex behaviors and, and, and social lives and all kinds of neat things. And, and certainly they, they don't have a brain.
0: More on that in the second half of the season, though. Yeah, no spoilers.
2: So I think it's a little bit, uh, you know, anthropocentric to think sure. that something need, needs to have a brain for a complex behavior. But we're certainly learning that, that uh, it's amazing what jellyfish can do with, um, with not that complex of a nervous
0: system. I mean, come on. It's a no-brainer. I'm Richard. This is Devin. And this is The Wildlife. Stay tuned.
2: So jellyfish are a pretty fascinating group of animals. Um, In fact, we we think they may be some of the oldest free-swimming animals on the planet.
0: Perhaps 500, even 600 million years old. Seriously? They've
2: been around on the planet for a long time. they're they're in a phylum, a, a taxonomic group.
0: Think kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Phylums are the second largest group, if that tells you anything.
2: Along with uh, corals and sea anemones. So these organisms are, are really interesting in that they have radial symmetry.
0: What's
1: radial symmetry?
0: So a lot of animals we are familiar with have something that's called bilateral symmetry, where if you were to draw a line down the middle... They'd be the same on the left and right
2: whereas jellyfish and and other cnidarians um which are, are part of that phylum cnidaria they have radial symmetry and so they're sort of symmetrical from kind of the center out like a pie like like a pie so you know as i mentioned they've, they've been around for a really really long time and um some people are surprised to learn that that jellyfish and and corals and sea anemones are related but if you think about a sea anemone with, you know, the tentacles around the outside and the mouth in the middle.
0: If you sort of pluck that off the bottom of the ocean and you put it upside down.
2: It's sort of a similar design to a jellyfish. Again, tentacles around the outside and, and mouth in the middle. So um, they're closely related. And, and jellyfish actually have a really unique life cycle. Um, for, for some species, part of that includes a polyp stage that looks an awful lot like a, a coral without the skeleton.
0: They're... A little hard to describe. We'll put up some pictures, but they start skinny at the bottom and they get thicker, thicker, thicker as you near the top where the tentacles are. Sort of like an upside down cone. And they look a lot like an anemone.
2: So there there certainly are, once you dig into it a bit more, there's a lot of similarities between jellyfish and corals and sea
0: anemones. And these creatures, brainless as they may be, have what has got to be one of the most fascinating life cycles on the planet. One that will begin At a graveyard Richard, remember how When we were kids we'd walk up and down the beach Looking for shells and things Yeah, Yeah, but sometimes we'd get to the beach And stumble upon a scene of a massacre Just jellyfish bodies Everywhere as far as you could see
1: Yeah, it would be pretty gross or would be there along with seaweed And uh, other debris Yeah,
0: kind of ruins your plans for like a nice beach day <laughs> But did you ever notice how nearly all of them were the same size?
1: Well, now that you say it, yeah, they were.
0: Well, jellyfish
2: um can have a have a really unique life cycle.
0: One that results in a sort of graveyard phenomenon. But first,
2: um, of course, there's thousands of species of jellyfish that we've discovered and described. And there's probably thousands more, if not tens of thousands more that we uh, have yet to discover and describe. So they're they're a very complex group of animals. There's there's quite a number of species and we don't even really have a good definition for, for what a jellyfish is.
1: So what does he mean? Jellyfish are pretty simple things, right? I mean, if it looks like a jellyfish and swims like a jellyfish.
2: Jellyfish is not really a scientific term. Um, we we as scientists, we still use it, and we are careful to define in each instance what we mean by jellyfish. But most scientists can't agree on sort of what organisms should be in that definition. You know, a, a colleague of mine um, says there's no such thing as a jellyfish.
0: No such thing as a um, of course, there is. It's just that what defines what a jellyfish is—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's complicated
2: because we tend to ascribe different character traits from different uh, taxonomic groups, and so there actually isn't really one thing that um, defines what a jellyfish is. But we—we um, we know it's not a fish, as I mentioned. Uh, usually, we refer to them um, these in this group, Nidaria. But there's also a couple other. Um, unrelated groups like comb jellies or tenophores, which which we used to lump together into a bigger group. And now we realize they deserve sort of their own group, mm-hmm. uh, given the way they evolved. So so now comb jellies have their own phylum called tenophora. And, uh, you know, tenophores, there's a couple hundred different species. And, and these are fascinating uh, organisms as well, somewhat related to the so-called true jellyfish uh, in terms of uh, the convergent evolution and the traits that they have, but in other ways, they, uh, they're very different as well.
0: So real quick, the other day I was reading this article on this really cool discovery that was made by a biologist named Sydney Tam at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, uh, a transient anus. So, basically, jellyfish eat and defecate all out of the same spot.
1: Man, can you imagine?
0: I'd rather not, but anyway, uh, it's been believed that comb jellies were the same. But, as it turns out, the warty comb jelly has an anus while it's defecating that basically just disappears whenever it's not being used or being called to duty. No trace. Completely absent. Basically, it eats until it's about to burst, and its slowly expanding gut connects with its hyper-thin skin layer, you remember that just one layer of cells?
1: That's that's nuts that it's only one layer. That's so small.
0: Yeah, and when it does that, it begins to form an opening. It empties out, the gut shrinks away, and the anus disappears. That's pretty neat. And this happens like once an hour.
1: Oh, man. So it's happening all the time. That's even worse.
0: Anyway, back to broads. So,
2: you know, we have this broad group of organisms, and um, so... Equally, they have a very diverse set of life cycles. You know, some jellyfish um, have certain phases of their life cycle that other ones don't. But there, there's, uh, when we, we look at the true jellyfish, there is this sort of uh, really interesting life cycle where the adult
0: phase... The one you might see washed up on the beach, they are called the medusa. You know, like the snake hair lady.
2: The medusa typically... Um, for most species is sexually dioecious.
0: Dioecious? Yeah, uh, basically it means that there are both males and females.
2: And that adult stage, when it's time to reproduce, um, will either release their eggs and sperm into the water column and they'll fertilize there.
0: Huh. So the eggs and sperm are released in a cloud. Just a cloud where they just they drift in the ocean, out in the blue, and hopefully, Hopefully, enough will come in contact with each other to mark the beginning of a new generation.
2: Or some species, the the female, will hold on to the eggs and sort of brood the larvae when the male releases the sperm and and they'll fertilize that way. But um, when that happens, you you get these fertilized eggs that turn into um, things that we call planulae.
1: Planulae? Planulae. Planulae. What exactly is the planulae?
2: And each little polinula, um, if you look at it under a microscope, it's, it's, it's really just, um, a little ellipse, um, with some sort of swimming hairs or cilia on the outside of it.
0: Like a hairy tic-tac. Um, that's your description? Well, I mean, technically it was his first,
1: but, you know, he's not wrong. Oh, hey, it actually kind of does look like one.
2: These things can
0: survive for, um... You know, hours to days, potentially even weeks if they have the right conditions, just drifting, drifting, drifting,
2: but it's usually just days where they're, they sort of swim around, drifting, drifting, and they're, what they're looking for is a hard substrate, something they can attach to
0: some place to quite literally anchor down.
2: And so, um, this may happen on the ocean bottom or, um, you know, on the underside of rocks or uh, other shells of, of say, mussels or clams or oysters or things like that. And once they find a nice place to attach, they'll they'll sort of stick there and they'll start metamorphosing into a polyp.
1: How come I've never heard of jellyfish going through metamorphosis?
0: Not really like a butterfly, but... Yeah,
2: they're really tiny. You can barely see them with the naked eye, depending on the species. But mm-hmm. um, again, they look a lot like a, a coral polyp without the skeleton. And so they have these tentacles around the outside and, and the mouth in the middle and they can happily survive um, attached to these hard substrates under the ocean um, for a really long time. And they'll feed on anything that's sort of drifting by. They can sort of sting them and grab them with their tentacles and pass them into their mouth.
0: Man, what a life. Just imagine that. Imagine that in order to eat, you had to sit glued to a park bench. And on the off chance that something came near enough, you had to smack it as hard as you could. And just hope that you stunned it long enough for you to eat it.
1: Actually, I think we have a guy like that at the local park. Bit of an urban legend. The squirrels really stay clear.
0: Is it an urban legend the squirrels tell or, or, or people? The squirrels. Talking to squirrels again?
1: Yeah. So, how long do they do this for?
0: You
2: know, we don't really know how long they can live, but they've been kept in aquaria for uh, for more than seven years in some cases, and oh, wow. so um, they, you know they it may be even longer than that uh, out in the wild for sure. And so, one thing that's interesting too that a lot of species can do is that the polyps can asexually produce more polyps.
0: The polyps formed by the sperm and eggs of the medusa your prototypical adult jellyfish, can themselves reproduce through what is basically cloning. Is that what budding is? Yeah, there's there's a few ways they can do it. One of the main ways is budding off more polyps.
2: You know, you can start with, with only a few polyps, and, and over time, the, they can multiply and multiply, and all of a sudden you wow. have sort of what we refer to as like a, a polyp bed.
1: Sounds comfy.
2: So you've got a whole bunch of polyps maybe covering a rock or a certain area. Um, and so they're happily sort of feeding themselves never mind and then when conditions become favorable they sense a change in their environment whether it's the water warming up or Mm. food availability or a change in light Um, we're not exactly sure of the combination of factors that that make them again go through another transformation which is called strobilation and it's really fascinating i encourage people to to you know google it
0: yes Please do. We did, and we've put up some videos in the blog, but you've really got to see it for yourself. It begins with the tentacly part at the top.
2: That sort of top part of the polyp um, starts to metamorphose, and you start to see these s-
0: stacks. Sort of like if someone was placing a rubber band around the body of a polyp, like like you might have done to your arm in elementary school.
1: Or high school.
0: Richard, be honest, was it like yesterday? Yes. <laughs>
2: Almost like, um, you know, a, a stack of dishes or saucers.
0: So you get these sort of cinched up sections, like a, like a stack of pancakes. Okay, last one.
2: And huh. um, as they metamorphose, you can see the top one starting to flex more and more. And eventually, uh, the top one will sort of break off and start swimming free. And that's? And that's ty- a tiny little baby jellyfish medusa. A little jelly baby and then, of course, all these other ones underneath it slowly follow sure. through and, and break off. And again, this is another form of asexual reproduction where they're cloning themselves. But you can imagine if you have a whole sort of area of polyps, they're all producing these tiny little baby jellyfish that we call wow. a fire Um, You know, each polyp, depending on the species, maybe produces, you know, a dozen little baby jellyfish. And then if there's there's many dozen polyps, all of a sudden you have all these little baby jellyfish that are born at the same time. Potentially thousands of them. And so that cohort um, is what ultimately will lead to a bloom. And jellyfish grow really, really rapidly. Um, Part of the secret to their success is, is they're mostly made of water.
0: And they're 95 to 98% water depending on the species. That much? You know,
2: sometimes in the ocean, it's good to be big.
0: You can eat more things. You can avoid being eaten by things that are smaller than you. So They can sort of fake being giants. Like a cobra.
2: If you have this whole cohort of all these baby jellyfish that are born at the same time, they grow really rapidly, you know, in a temperate environment. This could be over a period of, of a couple months. And all of a sudden, you have a whole bunch of jellyfish that are now that sort of adult medusa that we're all familiar with. And so this is why we see these huge blooms of jellyfish in some places where they're all sort of the same size there's a huge abundance of them and depending on what's happening with the conditions if the, if the you know, winds and tides are unfavorable it may wash them up onto the beach and so that's why you often see these big blooms or, or some medusa wa- washed up on the beach because they, they came from sort of a, a common bloom. And then? Of course, the, the life cycle repeats itself. One thing that's really interesting is that those polyps, after they strobilate and they produce all these baby jellyfish, most of those polyps actually survive. And so it's really interesting to think um, that, you know, even though you've got this big bloom of jellyfish and the life cycle continues, you still have those little polyps down on the ocean floor happily, um, you know, surviving down there. And...
1: So it's like... If a chrysalis could not only replicate itself, but if even after the butterfly left it could still somehow continue producing more butterflies
0: Is it, that's crazy, right?
1: It makes me dizzy to think about
2: people in the past have suggested that uh, you know there's lots of jellyfish around, and so maybe you know we're really good at overfishing let's let's try to fish them out and um you know jellyfish fisheries are quite large.
0: We'll talk about that in a minute
2: but um it's unlikely to potentially work to remove all the medusa because those little polyps are still there and can sure. make more baby jellyfish year after year. You know, a, a colleague of mine likened it to um, trying to kill an apple tree by picking all the apples. It's not going to work. You come back every year and there's, there's more and more apples. And so um, if we really need, if we really want to try and address uh, controlling jellyfish populations, we have to consider the polyps.
0: Okay. So remember last season, uh the air we breathe when we talked about algae blooms and how they kind of live in these sort of bloom and bust life cycles that have a bit of a seasonality to them yeah okay so now thinking back to those jellyfish graveyards
1: yeah we just talked about those
0: yeah so it's just like it it feels like if if i remember right and and this seemed this seemed to happen At only specific points throughout the year like it was a some kind of a cycle
2: it's definitely possible it it varies by species and by environment but um yeah certainly you were asking about you know seasonality and Mm -hmm. in in temperate environments um we certainly see that where you know those polyps survive through the winter but then in the spring the baby jellyfish are born they um they're able to feed during the spring plankton bloom. They sort of peak in the summer. And certainly in some cases, yes, they could run out of resources through competition and that uh, and the like. And then eventually um, they'll start to die off in the fall um, a- after they've they've reproduced. And so certainly you do um, from a sort of visual point of view and from a biomass point of view, you definitely do get this quote-unquote, bloom and bust, where um, they rapidly increase their their biomass during the summer months, and then uh, they'll start to die off in, in the fall and winter. Um, however, in tropical environments, you can have a fairly steady um, sure. population of jellyfish all year round. You know, they can be Uh, continually sort of being born by through strobilation in all months of the year. And depending on the resources that are available, um, you might find more of a sort of steady state of Medusa or even a mixed cohort of sort of small jellyfish and big jellyfish, depending on how old they are. So it it really depends on, on the species and the environment in question.
1: So I guess it's a mix of yes and no.
0: Seems so. Huh. Yeah.
1: So what about the population as a whole? What do you mean? Well, from what I've seen in recent years, I feel like I've been seeing reports that the population around the globe is
0: experiencing a sort of bloom. Yeah, you know, um, I've heard that, too. And as it turns out
2: there, you know, there isn't um, great agreement amongst scientists about, you know, whether jellyfish are increasing globally.
0: And part of the reason for that is because the question itself is kind of complicated.
2: You know, I often respond to the question, are jellyfish increasing globally? By saying, well, it depends what you mean by a jellyfish. It depends what you mean by an (laughs) increase. It depends what you mean by global. And it depends over what time frame. Because, you know, you can sort of adjust those things to come up with a different answer. But um, there's a few things we can sort of say for for certain. Um, One is that we know... Not all jellyfish are increasing in all places. You know it's it's not every species of jellyfish is is thriving everywhere we look. we We certainly know that's not the case. Mm-hmm. How, however, we are seeing um, some jellyfish species increase in some places. We're also seeing some jellyfish decrease in other places, but it does seem that the increases, are um, more prevalent than the jellyfish. Sure. And it's hard to get it sort of how much because jellyfish have really been understudied.
0: See, jellyfish are interesting and all, but when compared to other species, most people sort of shrug them off their shoulders. All they care to know is, can it sting me?
2: They've, they've historically been ignored because they weren't perceived as important or maybe even they were perceived as a nuisance.
0: Apparently, there are even old marine biology guidebooks that tell you how to study your sample, and they basically just say,
2: remove all the jellyfish and then start (laughs) counting the organisms.
0: Man, brutal. Right.
2: We've certainly missed out on sort of monitoring them and understanding what a historical norm is. And then on top of that, jellyfish populations are quite variable in many environments. You know, that life cycle we talked about, some years the success of the blooms will be a lot higher than others. So you get a lot of noise in the signal um, and it can be difficult to sort of extract a trend. However, um, we are seeing sustained increases in jellyfish in many areas of the world. And these areas are also um, sort of disconnected or disparate from each other. in in a way to suggest, okay, something might be happening here.
0: Something on a sort of larger scale.
2: You know, we're seeing a lot of increased and prolonged blooms in in Asia.
0: In places like around the East China Sea, Yellow Sea, the Sea of Japan.
2: Uh, Europe as well.
0: The Mediterranean, the Black Sea, and a little further north into the North Sea and the Baltic.
2: And then there's even sort of uh, less populated areas like the Bering Sea, and the Benguela ecosystem off the coast of Africa, Namibia, um, even really remote places that we consider like Hawaii and Antarctica, we're seeing increases in jellyfish. And so, um, although it's not, as I said, all species everywhere, we're we're seeing this trend of, okay, it's happening in, in quite a few disparate places, these look to be fairly sustained increases. So we start to say, okay, it, this looks like a trend, and, and, and we think something's going on here. One thing we know for sure is that jellyfish populations are highly connected with climate. And so um, in some areas, that may favor some jellyfish, and in other areas, it, it may not.
1: What sways it one way or the other?
2: depends on uh, what the change is and, and what the species prefers. Um but certainly, we all know that the climate is changing quite rapidly right now, and, and mm-hmm. definitely in, uh, in certain areas, jellyfish are driven a lot by temperature. And so, you know, we mentioned those sort of spring blooms and the fall die-offs, and of course, if your spring comes earlier from a temperature standpoint and your, and your winter comes later from a temperature standpoint, that sure. could just be a longer jellyfish window.
0: A broader time period for jellyfish to bloom, uh, much in the way we'd think about trees or flowers.
2: They show up earlier and they stick around longer. And we're certainly seeing that um, in many areas where the sort of jellyfish season is lengthening. They can also expand their ranges if the waters warm up and they can now move into areas that were previously inhospitable to them. We're, we're certainly sure. seeing that with um, some of the box jellyfish around Australia and stuff like that. These are sort of the more dangerous uh stinging jellyfish and and they're they really seem to be expanding their range into warmer waters
0: how dangerous this dangerous
1: that looks really gross yep oh my you... god that that wasn't even the bad one yeah thanks for the, that picture
0: yeah the first one's not even the bad one the second one is just brutal they've been called the world's most venomous creature The venom basically causes cells to become really porous, so potassium leaks out of them, something called hyperkalemia. What ends up happening with that is you have cardiovascular collapse. You can die in two to five minutes. So each jellyfish tentacle, they're covered in thousands and thousands of cells that are called nitoblasts, which have these little things called nematocysts, which are stinging threads. And when a jellyfish comes in contact with another object... The pressure inside of that nematocyst—it's like a—it's like a pressure plate in like those movies where someone's trying to steal something from a museum or like a super secret vault, and they have like this pressure plate. And when the pressure inside the, the nematocyst uh, is, is is increased, it causes the thread to uncoil, and those stinging cells spring out at the victim like tiny little darts. And when they come in contact, well, they fire venom into it, and that venom is a neurotoxin. Normally designed to just paralyze whatever but you know if if it's a human it's going to go a little bit differently
2: Of course if you're an arctic species and and you really like cold water then Mm -hmm. warming waters could be really bad for you So I think you know that it will be bad for for some species. there will be winners and losers, but um, Those winners will really seem to be thriving and taking over Um, But in in addition to climate, there's a number of other factors um that have been proposed to lead to jellyfish populations. And we've seen pretty convincing examples of, of these in some places. Um, one is certainly invasive species.
0: So, humans ship things all around the world and global ocean liners and tankers, and sometimes they use ballast water to compensate for an empty load on a return trip, or even just to balance out their load. And of course, any little bits of plankton can come along with this ballast water as well as polyps, which can sometimes attach to the holes of the ship. And so we're transferring all of these organisms around the globe in areas where they never evolved to begin with.
2: Every once in a while, in some cases, um, a jellyfish will get into a new ecosystem and, and really thrive. Um, you know, One of the classic examples of this is in the Black Sea in Europe, where some uh, an invasive species of, of comb jellyfish got in there and um, just really took over the whole ecosystem.
0: Some people describe it as more jellyfish than water at one point.
2: And ironically, while they were, you know, debating about what to do about this, because the fisheries collapsed uh, at the same time, and probably part of the reason why they collapsed is because uh, these jellyfish ate fish eggs and fish larvae, and so they prevented the fisheries from from thriving. But there was probably also some overfishing involved um, of those species. But they were suggesting that... um, we could bring in another jellyfish that was uh, a predator of these these invasive jellies and uh, we know that doesn't work that well uh, we've seen examples in in Hawaii and Australia where that that goes poorly but Ironically, while they were debating this, uh, that predator species accidentally also got introduced. And so (laughs) it did have a bit of an effect where it reduced the the population of jellyfish. And so now, you know, the Black Sea is sort of in a state of recovery. There's still jellyfish there, but thankfully not as many as there used to be. But we're seeing these invasive species of jellyfish pop up in places all over the globe and in some in some cases they they're they're really thriving so we can point to that and say that you know those examples are definitely those increases in jellyfish that were not there before are definitely sort of the fault of of humans
0: outside of that
2: it's a little more difficult to point the finger but we have seen examples where um overfishing has has led to uh an increase of jellyfish wait
1: how does but how does overfishing Well, many
0: fish eat jellyfish.
2: It's not that well known, and we've probably underestimated how many fish eat jellyfish, probably Mm -hmm. because they, um, you know, the way that we normally did diet studies was to cut open a fish's stomach and see what was inside, but... If you eat in a jellyfish, it's really just a bit of goo in there. It's, it's sure, hard to yeah. tell, and it, it digests very quickly. But there's new techniques now where we're realizing that that f- fish and, and other organisms, especially sea turtles and things, actually mm-hmm. eat quite a bit of jellyfish. Um, Seabirds as well.
1: Oh, okay. I, I knew sea turtles did, and uh, they sometimes
0: eat plastic bags thinking it's a jellyfish. Yeah, which is... Pretty sad in itself, right?
2: You know, with these predators that these fish uh, on jellyfish, if you remove them from the ecosystem, obviously that could release the jellyfish from the sure. They could start to thrive.
0: Well, that makes sense. And probably even a bigger effect is direct competition.
2: There's a lot of sort of smaller fish species, forage fish that eat the same things as jellyfish. So they're in direct competition. And you know, if you remove millions of tons of those fish from the ecosystem, again, that could release jellies from competition and they can start to thrive. And we've seen in some places, um, you know, one of the classic examples is, uh, as I mentioned off the coast of Africa near Namibia, um, It really seems that the ecosystem there has switched from one that used to be fish dominated to one that's now jellyfish dominated and that's probably due to overfishing so uh, historically a lot of the small fishes there um, as well as some of the predatory fishes were overfished and their populations collapsed and that allowed jellyfish to, uh, to really sort of take over the ecosystem. And now uh, the jellyfish will eat the, the fish eggs and, and fish larvae, and that could prevent the fish populations from recovering. We've, we've seen this sort of alternate stable state where an ecosystem can, can really switch. And even if you remove the, the threat, then the ecosystem might not switch back. So that's definitely something to be concerned about, um, especially given you know, the amount of fish that we remove from the sea every year. It's, it's quite uh, staggering.
0: So here lies a bigger question what kind of impacts then do jellyfish are jellyfish having both ecologically and economically
2: ecologically it's kind of difficult to say um if it's a good thing or a bad thing because it really depends on you know who you're rooting for in the ecosystem so mm-hmm. Jellyfish are are voracious predators, and and they um, can definitely have an impact on on the ecosystem in terms of whatever they're eating, um, which is obviously bad for whatever they're eating. But whatever that thing eats, then that might sure. be good for them. So um, they can have cascading effects throughout the ecosystems for sure, and and can alter them. Um, however, you know, again, it's a, it's a complex. Uh, set of ecosystems out there, and we, we have a, only a limited understanding of, of how these ecosystems are going to change in, re, in response. Um, we do make, you know, sort of mathematical models where we try to predict, um, but in terms of the dynamics of jellyfish and, and other types of plankton, it's uh, it's still fairly limited at this point.
0: Remember, incredibly, incredibly understudied.
2: But the impacts on humans are, um, you know, numerous and in often cases very costly. Um, as you mentioned, you know, jellyfish can sting humans, which can be a problem for, for tourism and an effect on public health. Um, but jellyfish can also have really significant impacts on other human activities.
1: What kind of activities?
2: You know, a number of years ago, this even caused a, a, a trawler to capsize in Japan and, Yeah, the fishermen were thrown into the water. Thankfully, they were rescued and no one got hurt. But um, it gives you a sense of how, you know, a full net of jellyfish can can be a real problem. Yeah,
1: man. Oh, my gosh.
2: They also clog um, intake pipes of power plants and desalination plants. So a lot of um, power plants are built right on the coast to take advantage of the seawater to cool their machinery. And... Mm -hmm. Um, if there's a jellyfish bloom in the area, they could sort of get sucked into the pipe and and clog the pipe. And so in, in places all around the world every year, um, it can be really costly. You know, they have to shut down the whole plant, send divers down to clear out the jellyfish. And and this can be, you know, a really big problem. They also interfere with aquaculture. And so you can get huge blooms of jellyfish that are sort of swept into, uh, say like a salmon farm and it can... Mm -hmm. Infect the the salmon uh, accidentally by you know getting bits of tentacle in their gill or cutting off the flow of oxygen and you know there's been cases cases in the past few years where all the salmon in the in the fish farms have been wiped out so it's it can be really you know costly to human activity and and people are certainly interested in. Um, either trying to predict whether or not it's going to be a good or bad jellyfish season or even perhaps controlling their populations in some way.
0: But here's the thing. They also have some pretty positive impacts. Jellyfishing is a surprisingly large industry.
2: To most people in North America, it comes as a, as a surprise that this happens. But um, actually, jellyfish fisheries are, are quite large, um, and they're mostly caught as food for humans.
1: Excuse me, what?
2: Jellyfish have been eaten in in many Asian countries like China and Japan and Thailand for for quite a long time. Um, Probably thousands of years in in China. And it's rare that you would go to a, a Chinese celebration like... Uh, a wedding or Chinese New Year without having at least one jellyfish dish served, if not many more. And so, um, you know, eating the consumption of jellyfish is is part of the cultural tradition in in many of these Asian cultures. And because of this, you know, jellyfish have have targeted fisheries in those areas. Um, So I've estimated the global harvest of jellyfish for human consumption to be over a million tons. And um to put that in uh perspective, you know, that's more than the weight of all the clams that people wow. eat. Up. That's more than mussels.
0: More than lobster.
1: You're 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 telling me that some places they're more popular than lobster.
0: Yep.
2: So it's definitely really significant. Um most of the fisheries are in Asia as well, but um there's quite a demand over there and so uh jellyfish fisheries are popping up in places all around the world now mostly to serve those Asian markets but we have a new jellyfish fishery in Mexico um there's a couple small jellyfish fisheries in the United States
1: do you know what it's like to eat one
2: consuming jellyfish um might not be exactly what people think if they've never done it it's not really sort of this gooey mess on sure your- um, it's kind of surprisingly, the texture of them is surprisingly crunchy. Um, this is because there's only a handful of jellyfish species that people like to eat. Mm-hmm. It's typically the more kind of meaty, denser tissue jellyfish. And then they soak them in, they soak them in various mixtures of, uh, powders and and salts that, um, crisp up the texture. So, um, it's kind of crunchy and chewy at the same time.
0: Like an undercooked pasta or al dente pasta. You know, like the little soft on the outside with the the slight little crunch, crunch in the middle, like testing out your spaghetti. And you don't really want to throw it on a cabinet, so you're like, Oh, I'll just take a bite of this and then you're like, Oh, it's it's right but then like that's like a split second because then you get to the middle and it goes crunch and you're like, Oh.
2: And they don't have much in intrinsic flavor, um it really depends on how they're prepared, whatever flavoring the chef decides to add to them and stuff. So, you know, I've, I've tried jellyfish in, in many places and many times and, uh, you know, I've had good jellyfish and, and bad jellyfish. Um, yes. It really depends on where it was caught, how it was processed and then how it's how it's prepared and served. Um, I don't expect that... Um, you know the consumption of jellyfish is going to take off anytime soon in, in North America because people are so sure. sort of uh, grossed out by it a little bit. A lot, bit, of,
0: a lot but of food bias here. <laughs> exactly
2: exactly but again it's it's just sort of that cultural perspective um, what what kind of food you grew up with and what you're taught of as, as food and um, so you know we do expect the Asian market to continue to grow and um, that's going to have to be serviced uh to some extent you know in in china they actually have uh jellyfish aquaculture where they have these really large sort of saltwater ponds um they're sort of bays or areas that they've kind of netted off and they raise jellyfish in those areas for consumption and they even have um, jellyfish hatcheries in japan where they'll grow baby jellyfish in the lab and then release the babies into the ocean in the hopes that they'll grow and they can come harvest them in the fall. And so, well, <laughs> you know, that's, that's pretty shocking to, to some people to say, you know, I thought there were too many jellyfish around. Why are we adding more of them to the environment when they're just a nuisance? <laughs> but of course, certain species are valuable for food. And, and here in North America, you know, we do the same thing with salmon and, right. and um, you know, that's seen as, as, you know, ecologically important and and can serve some of our food needs, and it's really just the same same thing that's happening uh, in China with the jellyfish hatcheries. But it's ah, uh, it's really interesting to to you know e- explore all these different perspectives.
1: Interesting. So, is there a correlation between what populations are blooming and which ones are being eaten, or could they maybe be a fix to control blooms a bit?
2: We don't really have enough data to say one way or the other. Um, sure in some cases uh, we see an increase in a species of jellyfish and uh, you know people will say hey this is a uh, part of the group of edible species you know perhaps we want to start harvesting these and uh, and develop a market or, or export them to Asia and in some cases that may be possible but it can be tricky too because you um, people may not want to, you know, increase, uh, investment in, um, a fishery like that. You, you, you sort of have to invest a lot of infrastructure to get it off the ground. And then the next year the population might collapse. So it's, it's difficult to, um, ensure that you're going to get a return on your investment there. And, um, you know, the only, some species are edible and if it's, if it's one that's not really developed in the market yet, then it, it. it may not fly, so to speak. Um, sure, increases that we're seeing in other jellyfish species that aren't edible. Um, you know, there's obviously only a limited market for them, and but you know, people are are exploring all kinds of different uses for for jellyfish as well. I think. Um, You know, for fertilizers, um, of course, they're important for medicines and and pharmaceutical research and things like that. Um, There's even uh, some companies exploring using them as as an absorber. So once you dehydrate them, then those tissues could be added to things like paper towel or even diapers to make them super absorbent. a company in Russia even found that it increased the properties of cement when they added jellyfish to their cement. <laughs> it, uh, it actually performed better. So,
0: But, and Lucas agrees, we shouldn't necessarily just look to fishing jellyfish, jellyfishing, to solve all of our jelly problems.
2: There's, there's a whole host of sort of unknowns that could happen and, and you know, um, anyone involved in a jellyfish fishery is probably going to want it to be sustainable, as we've seen with the hatcheries in China. So they're, they're not going to want to overfish them. And um, there's a whole number of other concerns, um, not least of which it sort of would shift our baseline to say, you know, sure. It's just a band-aid on a problem that we should really start looking at the, the root cause of the problem. However, um, if there are these certain sort of what we may want to call quote-unquote weedy species that um, take advantage of the changing environment that that humans have created... Um, we may want to look at exploring options to, to you know, harvest them or, or use them in certain ways if, if they're gonna be thriving um, in this kind of brave new world, uh, brave mm-hmm. new ocean that we have. So um, I think it's, it's worth sort of exploring, but we should go in with uh, the precautionary approach, uh, knowing that we know very little about the marine environment. We know very little about jellyfish in general and what the impacts of, of fishing could be.
0: But at the end of the day, the biggest, most important question that I had to ask was this. Why jellyfish?
2: Well, to me, jellyfish are uh, aliens. I mean, these, these creatures are so fascinating that uh, it'd be difficult to, to even sort of um, make them up. If, if we didn't have an mm-hmm. example here on Earth. You know, when I, when I was a kid, I was really interested in outer space and, and wanted to become an astronaut. And uh, I've realized that, you know, we have an unexplored world right here on our own planet. You know, we we know less about the, the bottom of the ocean than we do about the moon. And, you know, a, a submarine or these, you know, underwater vehicles are really spaceships for planet Earth. And so Mm -hmm. I think if people, um, you know, wanna be fascinated and wanna visit a whole new world, uh, they can do so just just by going to the beach. So, you know, I encourage people to learn more and and get in the water and and learn to scuba dive and start exploring our marine environment because it's a fascinating world, completely different than our own, the one that we're familiar with in this, Mm um, two-dimensional, above-surface world, and um, one of the most exciting things is it's really unexplored. There are so many unknowns and and things that have yet yet to be discovered down there.
0: So basically, trade in your space suit for a scuba suit. And now,
1: it is time.
0: Animal sound of the week. the last animal sound of the week was a koala surprising right we 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 did not yeah but that's okay now this week we have Another very surprising sound. And it sounds like this. As always, that, that that's what it sounds like. That right there. As always, send us your guesses
1: on Facebook for a chance to win a prize.
0: Maybe not a great prize, but a prize.
1: It's a prize, so take it and
0: be an adult about it. Just appreciate having a prize. We can't all be winners, but some of us can get prizes. Remember, if you have any questions for us that you want or need answered, you can submit those to us in a whole variety of ways. You can send us a message on Facebook at the Wildlife blog, or by clicking the green Ask TWL button on the front page of the website, thewildlife.blog. You can message me on Instagram at Guy. Remember, there are no such thing as bad or dumb questions. I mean sort of, but not really. The whole of human knowledge can be only after asking a ton of weird questions and making lots and lots of wrong guesses with tons of near misses and more failures than we could possibly imagine. So never be afraid to ask or try to guess, but that's how we learn.
1: Instructions on how to submit your questions can be found at thewildlife.blog
0: forward slash podcast. The Wildlife is listener, reader, and viewer supported and can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you believe in what we're doing you can show your support by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash the wildlife when you become a patron you'll gain exclusive access to content and have the opportunity to appear on our show to ask questions help with credits or you know just like be a guest
1: for sources and a more in-depth look at what we talked about today check out the wildlife.blog as always if we've made a mistake or got something wrong Just let us know with a quick message and we'll do our best to fix it.
0: Thank you for listening to what is the mid-season finale. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store and share with your friends. For a look at the upcoming second half of the season, not going to give away too much yet, but we will give you some subject related tidbits, titles. That's the word I was looking for titles, we will give you some titles so, picking up in the second half we're going to start with Fungus Among Us another one we will be talking about is uh, whether or not plants can themselves be intelligent then then we'll be talking about bioluminescence the role of fire in the natural world and we're going to end it with a two-parter, a two-parter, one-hour-each episode on what wiped out the dinosaurs, how it went down. And I'll tell you this, it was one bad weekend. Stay tuned.